I had a friend ask me one time to give them advice. He said, if you could leave me with one piece of advice before I go, what would it be? And at the time, the thought that came to mind was, it's all mind. It's all mind. What do I mean by that? Everything that you encounter, you encounter through mind. Touch is a sensation that's encountered through the mind. Smells, sights, everything, thoughts. So the reason you know this body is here is because the mind exists. So there's no separation between mind and object. Mindfulness Outreach Initiative is a nonprofit insight meditation organization located in Omaha, Nebraska. We provide meditation instruction based on ethics, compassion, and wisdom, as well as social outreach programs based on transformation and healing. To join the MOI community or to practice generosity, please visit our website at mindfulnessoutreachinitiative.org. Why don't we go ahead and get started? For just a couple minutes, we'll just sit briefly just to settle in. And because we have some, quite a few actually, new people here, I'll just do a little bit of guidance to this meditation. So in beginning, you want to sit with the spine straight. And allow maybe just a slight tuck to the chin. And allow the body to begin to relax and just settle into the position that you're comfortable with. Bringing mindfulness to be predominant to the four. You'll begin. There'll be one bell to begin and three bells to end. And begin by just noticing the body, noticing the whole body, top to bottom, front to back, side to side. You don't need to worry if there are areas or sections of the body that don't seem to be there or seem to be missing, that's fine. Just notice the body as a whole its position in space. Gently, with a gentle, clear awareness. Perhaps noticing some of the sensations on the body, the air against the skin, clothing on the skin, temperature of the room, sound of my voice, whatever is apparent to you, whatever is there for you. Just simple awareness. As awareness becomes manifest and things begin to settle for you, Continuing to relax with a sense of ease. Bring that mindful attention to the breath or whatever object of meditation you desire. 
If you choose the breath, you may notice the breath moving in and out of the nose or mouth. Or notice the breath with the rising and falling of the chest or the belly. Wherever it's most predominant, most obvious. And allow the attention to rest there with the breath. Just noticing the body breathing. If the mind wanders away from the breath, perhaps with thoughts of the day, what has happened today or what will happen today or tomorrow, you notice that smilingly, gently, bring the awareness back to the breath, relaxed and easy, calm, content, We'll sit in silence for a few moments. In a few more moments, the bell will sound. When it does, slowly and gently just open the eyes, continuing to maintain an awareness of the body and the breath, allowing mindfulness to continue. Welcome, everyone. It's good to see so many here tonight. So many new faces, old faces. Tonight, I thought I would talk about some things that have come up over the last month when I've been speaking with friends about the Dhamma or just thinking about the Dhamma, contemplating the Dhamma, the Dhamma being the, in this case, both the teachings of the Buddha, but also Dhamma meaning natural law, the way things happen, the way things occur, reality, if you will. Because a big part of this practice is investigating the nature of reality, looking at things 
seeing them as they are, and then noticing what are those characteristics, what is that behavior, how does reality actually behave, and then maybe also noticing how does the mind play with that, what are our reactions, our judgments, our thoughts about that, the stories we tell ourselves about what is real and what is not, about what is good and what is bad. So, the first question sort of came as a comment when I was talking with a friend, and it happened to come up in conversation that lately, this personal practice, I had been meditating for two and a half to three hours a day. And typical for me is about two hours, anywhere from one and a half to two and a half hours a day. So this was a little more than usual. And there was a lot of... The Pali word is papancha, papancha, or proliferation while I was sitting. And I'm pretty sure all of you have experienced this. This is the mind just chattering on and on and on. You might have heard the term monkey mind. The mind just goes off on a story, proliferates. And sometimes we get lost in that, sometimes we don't. And that's how we build our reality. And there were some other things that came up in this conversation and the comment was, well, maybe you're meditating too much. And my first reaction was, well, that's just silly. <laughs> but then I thought about it a little bit. And I thought, well, is it possible to meditate too much? I mean, after all, we hear stories about monks and monastics who meditate 10, 12, 14 hours a day, even when they're not on retreat. And when we go on retreat, silent retreat, we're meditating 8, 10, sometimes 12 hours a day. So is it possible to meditate too much? And I think the answer that I came up with when I was thinking about this to myself, I said, self, yes, it is probably possible to meditate too much if, if we are using meditation as a means to an end other than to see clearly into the nature of reality. What do I mean by that? Well, this particular practice, and we just had a tiny little brief moment of it here. When we watch something like the breath or an object of meditation, or we watch the mind, we begin to notice certain characteristics of reality. Things are always changing. Things arise, things pass away. And some of these very basic things. So when we're doing that, when we're being mindful, clearly knowing, there isn't any discontent or grief or anger or strong sensual desire. By sensual desire, anything that deals with the senses. Then... I don't think it's possible to meditate too much. And in fact, we can do this when we're not formally meditating. We can all sit here right now and feel the body. What's going on in this body? Oh, my neck hurts really bad. You know, what's happening with this body? What are the sensations arising? What are the thoughts coming into the mind? So we can all do that anytime. And no, I do not think it is possible to do that too much. In fact, the very nature of this practice, in part, 
is to lead one to the point where there is a continuity of practice both on and off the cushion such that we're so aware of how things unfold moment by moment that we're no longer trying to grasp or cling to anything. And it's in that non-grasping, non-clinging that we find peace. Because we're no longer desiring things to be different than they are. We're okay with the way things are. So in that instance, no. However, there are forms of meditation that lead to very deep states of concentration. TM is one of those, leads to very deep states of calm and concentration. There are times when we're sitting, and perhaps some of you, maybe all of you have experienced this, when there are these blissful periods. Maybe you've been sitting for a while and the knee was hurting and all that, and all of a sudden everything just goes, whoa. And all the pain goes away, and, and the mind is right there, and it's sharp and clear, and it's wonderful. Maybe it's deeply concentrated. And if you are meditating to try to achieve a certain state of being, then I think it is possible to meditate too much. Why? Because that is effectively a desire that is bound to be disappointed at some point. Why is that? Because the state of being will disappear. You can be meditating, blissful, wonderful, and then tomorrow or this evening or in the morning when you meditate again, it's awful. It's painful. The mind is everywhere. What happened? So if we're meditating to achieve something, it can be problematic. The desire can become unhealthy, unwholesome. Part of the process of this path is to allow things to be the way they are, to begin to see things the way they are and be okay with that. And anytime we're not okay with that, there is the potential for suffering to arise. There is the potential for discontent by definition. If there's something that's going on here right now that you're not okay with, there is a little bit of discontent. You are not contented. That is dukkha. That is suffering. It may be just a little bit, but it's still there. And there is a tendency when we meditate formally to achieve certain states of bliss or being, to have that become amplified. In other words, we get more and more agitated. Why isn't this working now? It was working before. What's going on? Be very, very careful of that. Notice when that's happening. Don't worry about it too much. But notice, oh yeah, I'm really striving for something. Instead of just like allowing things to be. Just noticing what's arising. And oh, the mind is just really busy right now. And like everything, there is a middle way. You don't want to get sloppy and lazy either. So you do, oh, the mind's just, no, I'm just going to float off in a fantasy. No, 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 no. You want to gently incline the mind toward, oh, 
The mind was often a fantasy, got lost in thought, and now I know. Mindfulness has returned. Sati, our friend mindfulness, has come back. And now we can come back to the breath or an object of meditation or contemplation or whatever the intent is. Kyle used a really good word that I didn't think of a few sessions ago when we did a kind of a round robin with the teachers. Aspiration. Aspiration. So an intention or an aspiration is fine. You can set an intention, say, oh, I'd like to work with concentration this time. And then just see where that takes you. And you can incline the mind gently toward that. Oh, come back to the breath. Come back to the breath. Come back to the breath. And when that doesn't work, because at some point it inevitably won't, notice what happens. What happens in the mind? Notice the body. Does mind body are the same thing. I had a friend ask me one time to give them advice. At that time, they were kind of a student. said, if you could leave me with one piece of advice before I go, what would it be? And at the time, the thought that came to mind was, it's all mind. It's all mind. What do I mean by that? Everything that you encounter, you encounter through mind. Touch is a sensation that's encountered through the mind. Smells, sights, everything, thoughts. So the reason you know this body is here is because the mind exists. So there's no separation between mind and object. That may be a little confusing so I would ask you to play with that a little bit. Find something that isn't mind. Maybe you will. I'm not saying there isn't anything that isn't mind, but I'll bet you 97% of what you encounter is gonna be mind. So that's the meditate too much thing. A couple of talks ago, I talked about a concept called dependent origination or dependent arising. And in the suttas, it says briefly, when this arises, that arises. When this ceases, that ceases. It is the nature of reality that there are conditions that arise that then lead to other things that arise, which, by the way, are also conditions for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And when those conditions cease, then whatever arose with those conditions also ceases. And there was, there was some questioning and conversation afterwards about cause and effect. And what is the difference between a cause and a condition? I'm going to ask you a question, and you can think about it for a couple minutes, and then I'd like to hear some feedback. So the question is, what causes mindfulness? Not what is the condition for it, but what causes mindfulness? Can you tell me what causes mindfulness to come into being? Now, I'll, I'll illustrate and I'll maybe clarify this a little. 
let's say you get sick with COVID, <laughs> you know, what caused the COVID? The virus, right? We'll just simplify this for now, okay? So that's a cause. That's like a cause. Or if you want to pot of water on the stove, if you heat it to a certain temperature, it boils. There's a cause. What causes mindfulness? Is there anything that directly causes mindfulness to arise? So let's, let's take a different track. What are some of the conditions that allow for mindfulness to arise? Mentioned a body, mentioned a mind, mentioned not being mindful and then recognizing that. So you notice that when you struggled to think of a cause, you were thinking of a single cause that was a direct relational cause that made, almost forced, mindfulness to come into being. Whereas when you started naming conditions, you named several different things right away. None of those conditions cause mindfulness to happen, but they are all necessary for mindfulness to happen. Take away one of those conditions, no mindfulness. Take away intention, no mindfulness. Take away the body, no mindfulness. Take away the mind, no mindfulness. Take away life, no mindfulness. Any one condition is gone, mindfulness goes away. So what does that mean as a practical matter? Well, if you start reading the discourses of the Buddha, you will find that oftentimes things are expressed in the negative. Refrain from, refrain from killing, refrain from taking that which is not yours, refrain from harsh speech, refrain from intoxicants, refrain from ill will, refrain from this, refrain from that. In fact, the last talk that Anne gave was all about renunciation, refraining from. Why is that? Why not just say, take it in the positive? And there are some things to do. When there are wholesome qualities, a lot of times they will say, be generous. But I want you to notice that when you refrain from something, when you refrain from doing harm, all you have to do is take away one condition and you'll automatically refrain from doing harm. So let's say you were starting to get angry say it's a family member, because they know how to push all your buttons, as Jonathan says, probably because they installed all the buttons in the first place. And you're, you're starting to get heated. You feel the body, you know, heating up and the anger coming and the shoulders tense in the face, right? You're starting to get a little heated. All you have to do is do away with one of the conditions that lead to anger and anger will diminish, maybe disappear completely. So you can redirect the thoughts. Oh, come to the body. Relax. Because one of the conditions for anger is tension. That's why, what do they tell you when you get heated? Take a deep breath. Relax. Turn on that vagus nerve. Relax. Condition diminishes, anger diminishes. So the useful part of that is 
when we are working with wholesome and unwholesome states, it's easier in some ways to work with unwholesome states because all we have to do is take away one condition. Oh, we weren't being mindful and we were going to say something that was not maybe appropriate or helpful. Mindfulness comes in, condition's gone, no problem, don't say it. Now, for wholesome states, it's a little bit more difficult because all of the conditions have to be there. So if you're going to have a wholesome state of truthfulness, you have to be mindful because you have to remember to be truthful. You have to be aware. You have to be able to use renunciation to avoid unwholesome aspects so that you can remain truthful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a little more work there. It takes a little more attention. It takes a little more mindfulness, a little more intent. The last talk that I gave was tending the garden. So if you listen to that, it's all about how we can cultivate the different conditions that lead to a calmer, more peaceful way of being in the world, that lead to the diminishment of stress, of dukkha, of discontent in our lives, and lead to more happiness and contentedness. Next one, also occasioned by a conversation, although in a roundabout way, has to do with peak experiences. And this has a little bit to do with some of the comments in Can One Meditate Too Much? Because one of the peak experiences we can have is that sense of bliss and wonder when we're meditating. But there are a lot of peak experiences. Some of you who are very athletic, maybe runners or, or mountain climbers, or you're really into yoga or something like that, you may have had peak experiences while, while doing some of those things. There are certain drugs that can cause those kinds of peak experiences to come into being, psychedelic drugs particularly. There are other things. Even, even scientific inquiry can lead to a peak experience, the sense of of wonder, accomplishment, openness, connectedness with the world, oneness with the universe, etc. It's all is well, that sort of thing. So what's the problem with a peak experience? Anybody? It doesn't last. And what do we try to do when we have a peak experience? I want that again! We want it to be permanent, or at least we want it to recur on a regular basis. And if only we had that peak experience again and again and again, then we'd be happy. Oh boy, where's that going to lead? The purpose of this path is not to have to depend on the circumstances that we happen to be in in order to be content, in order to be happy, in order to have a sense of ease and calm in the world. It doesn't mean that sometimes we're not just emotional basket cases. You know, I'm a householder, right? I live with family. And every once in a while, <laughs> it, it all flies out the window. And the key is that as that happens, the quicker we can recognize it, that we can see what's going on in the mind, the faster that we can bring mindfulness to bear on that, 
the more quickly we recognize that we can be at ease even in a very stressful situation. Not that everything is wonderful, not that the body doesn't hurt or the mind isn't in turmoil, but that we can be okay with that. There's a famous poster, and I forget the uh, famous yoga guy. I don't remember his name now, but he's on a, a surfboard and he's in tree pose in the middle of the ocean. And it says, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf at the bottom of the poster. And that's kind of what this is all about. It's like learning to surf. Being with things as they are, as they unfold for you, without getting caught up in them. Being engaged without being enmeshed. So we're still engaged with the world. This is not a practice of aloofness or indifference in that sense. We're just not so enmeshed, so caught up. We're not grasping. We're not trying to hold on to things that can't be held on to. And it's not to say that peak experiences are not useful. They can be. They can be quite eye-opening. Oh, because they have a tendency to broaden our sense of reality. They have a tendency to show us, oh, there's more here than I originally had thought. And that's fine. That's a useful tool. And then you let that go and you come back to whatever's going on. Suzuki Roshi uh, had a famous little saying that said, Satori, Satori is the Japanese term for enlightenment, and then laundry. Because that's the way life is. Life just goes on. And so this is all about being in your life with a sense of ease and calm and peace and contentment, as opposed to stress and discontent and unhappiness and anxiety and all that. By the way, if you want to have a, an interesting experience, do a lot of meditation when you're quite ill, when you're sick and you have a fever. It's really eye-opening to watch the mind struggle and struggle and struggle with it and then just finally say, enough. And then, I don't know if this happened for you, but you just sort of let it all go and ease into it. And it's just like, okay, this is what's going on. It is possible to have realizations of intense joy and happiness in the midst of great physical discomfort. It takes a while to get to that place, and there's a lot of mind struggling and stuff going on, and at some point, if you keep at it and you persist, the mind just lets go. The mind just says, enough, and lets go. And it's like, oh, this pain in the neck is just a sensation. It's just a sensation. So the way you can tell this practice is working for you and, by the way, for others, you can tell if people walk the walk. How perturbable are you? How easily are you perturbed? If you find that used to be when you were driving and someone cut you off and you'd be like, yeah, and you'd get all bent out of shape and maybe you'd follow him for a little while and maybe two hours later you'd still be at it. And now you're driving and it's like, oh, geez. Decreased perturbability. It's working. Or talking to the teacher and you see him kind of getting a little upset. Maybe they're disagreeing with you. Maybe that teacher is a little more perturbable than you would expect from a teacher. So that's the manifestation. 
of this practice is imperturbability. There's a story uh, in these discourses of the Buddha. Someone had tried to kill him, and they had pushed a big boulder down a mountain, and he got out of the way, but the boulder hit his foot, and there was quite a serious wound on his foot. And he happened to be walking to the village for alms to, with their begging bowls to get the daily meal. And he just kept walking. And finally, one of the disciples, one of the monks said, don't you want to, doesn't your foot hurt? And he's like, yeah, imperturbability. So lastly, I'm going to talk a little bit about right view, because you may have heard this term from time to time. There's a, a thing called the Noble Eightfold Path that is the way out of suffering. And right view is one of the eight things. Right intention, right view, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right concentration, right mindfulness. Am I forgetting one? Right effort. <laughs> Knew it would come to me. People get a little confused by right view because it tends to be pretty layered and you'll hear a lot of different explanations. So I wanted to read a little bit of this particular discourse called Right View. And then I'll talk a little bit about it. And if we have a little time, we can comment on it. One of Right View, one of Right View, it is said, friends, in what way is a noble disciple one of Right View, whose view is straight, who has perfect confidence in the Dhamma and has arrived at this true Dhamma? When, friends, the noble disciple understands the unwholesome and the root of the unwholesome, the wholesome and the root of the wholesome, in that way he is one of right view, whose view is straight, who has perfect confidence in the Dhamma, and who's arrived at, etc., etc. And then again, saying, good friend, the bhikkhus delighted and rejoiced in the venerable Sariputta's words. Sariputta is the one giving the discourse here. Then they asked him a further question. But friend, might there be another way in which a noble disciple is one of right view and has arrived at this true Dhamma Baba? When, friends, the noble disciple understands nutriment, the origin of nutriment, the cessation of nutriment, etc., etc. Again, good friend, is there another way? When, friends, a noble disciple understands suffering, the origin of suffering, the cessation of suffering, the way leading to the cessation of suffering, in that way he is one of right view. Again, good friend, the bhikkhus delighted and rejoiced in the venerable Sariputta's words. Then they asked him a further question, but friend, might there be another way? When, friends, a noble disciple understands aging and death, the origin of aging and death, the cessation of aging and death, the way to leading to the cessation of aging and death, then he is one of right view. And again, is there another way? When, friends, a noble disciple understands birth, etc., etc. And this discourse goes on for a few more pages, as you can see here. The reason I'm reading this is because you can see that there are a lot of different right views. And what happens, I think, with particularly with right view, is people get stuck in the idea that there's one right view, that right view is the right view. And obviously that's not the case, right? Here you have it from Sariputta, one of the Buddha's chief disciples, that there are lots of different right views. And maybe this seems obvious, 
But a lot of times people get stuck in that. Well, there's this right view. Now, why is this important? Well, because anything that anyone says comes from view. My talking up here all comes from my experience and my perspective. So that's my view. Things I don't know, what I have not seen, what I have not experienced, by definition, can't be part of that. Which is why I could go to each of you in this room and ask you what you heard tonight, and you would all tell me different things, because different things are going to land with you in different ways. You're going to find something in, oh, yes, this is really important, or this guy has no idea what he's talking about. Or some variation in between, or I totally disagree with that. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's the nature of humanity. Until we are fully realized, at least according to this, until we are fully enlightened, fully realized, until we've dropped all of that, we're all going to come at things from a perspective, a point of view, because our experience is, by definition, limited in some way. Now, if you have a very mature practice, and you're really adept, and you've been at this a long time in depth, your view is going to be larger. You're going to be able to encompass more in that. But it's still going to be view. It's still going to be view. That is important because as you hear different teachers, you will be attracted to, neutral toward, or repelled by various teachers and teachings. There are going to be some things that you have this, and there are going to be some things that you really love and you really want to delve into, and others that are just sort of eh. And you have to be a little bit careful of that because that's also view. And you don't want to get too stuck in, especially so-and-so is my teacher. Uh, you know, that thing where you sort of attach to a teacher and to the point that the teachings become less important than the teacher. How does this sound? Does it ring true? Now, you have to give it a fair trial. When we see ourselves just sort of rejecting things out of hand without checking in with our experience, and perhaps even playing with that for a while, months, even years, what's my experience with this? What is happening here? What is the nature of this? Then what we're doing is falling prey to judgment, ill will, defensiveness. We're solidifying this sense of self and I. We're building up those walls and we're shutting out the world. And we're making things smaller, constricted, more narrow. However, if we examine something fairly, play with it a little bit, give it some time, and we find that, no, it really, this isn't working for me. This doesn't ring true. Then fine. Do something else. All of these things that you hear here are tools. 
at your disposal. Most of them are tools that derive from the teachings of the Buddha. Now, I happen to place a lot of credence in the teachings of the Buddha for two reasons. One, obviously there's a lot of street cred there. Guy was around 25, 2600 years ago, still around today in a lot of ways. A lot of people think this is pretty good stuff. It seems to work, et cetera, et cetera. There's, now there is science to back up a lot of it. But mainly because my experience shows, yeah, the guy was right. This is true. Even when at first I had a lot of doubts about certain things. A, a big one. And, and I'm certainly by no means resolved in my own mind about this, but there's, there's, of course, a lot of teaching about past and future lives in here. And a lot of us would go, it's a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. And I've learned to keep an open mind because I just don't know. And that's different than this doesn't jibe with my experience. Don't be afraid to say, I don't know, ever, ever. Don't know mind is powerful, powerful. Because it's only through don't know mind that we can learn to know. Once you know, shuts out everything else. Don't know. Find out. Don't know. And maybe what you know isn't what you know 10 minutes, 10 years later. Everything changes. What you know is going to change. Your experience is going to change. So right view, in my view, is that which leads away from suffering. That which leads away from discontentedness. Anything that serves that purpose is right view. And if you're honest about that, in my experience, you'll find that, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. That unwholesome, unskillful things lead to more suffering, lead to more discontent, lead to stress, lead to anxiety, anger, ill will, disease. And things that are wholesome and skillful lead away from all that. They lead toward a sense of ease and peace and calm, contentedness. And this seems so self-evident. And it's not something that can be grasped intellectually. So until you actually experience the workings of Dhamma, until you see that if I act in a certain way, that if I act ethically, and I meditate, and I do these things that are recommended, that it actually leads to a result, not much is going to change if you're just thinking about it. It may make sense, and don't get me wrong, there's no, that usually the first step is that intellectual cognitive process. Oh yes, this makes sense, I'm going to explore this. That sort of gets us to that initial intent. You know, I'm going to start meditating, this sounds interesting. But it's the practice of meditation, of mindfulness, of ethical behavior, of right effort, of loving kindness, of compassion, of joy, equanimity, 
that leads to the actual decrease of discontent, and eventually it's utter destruction, leads to that manifestation of imperturbability. It's like, oh, okay, that's what's happening now. And there are some people that have at least some of this naturally. So there are people who haven't necessarily become familiar with this path. I think of somebody like a Nelson Mandela, who served, what, 25, 26, 27 years in, in prison, in solitary confinement? And came out of it, leader of his country, and does he seek revenge? Is he angry? No. The first thing he does is says, we need truth and reconciliation. We need a way forward. That's remarkable. Think about that. I don't know that I could do that. Now, he's not a Buddhist, right? But somehow, there was something in him that led to less suffering than a lot of people would have experienced, and a lot less anger and a lot less sense of wanting to get revenge or grasping at things. It was something bigger than he was. It had nothing to do with this little sense of self. So you'll find people like that from time to time as well. It's not all just about the Buddha. It's about the Buddha's teachings. See, because what the Buddha did, the Buddha's great discovery was finding this, saying, oh yeah, that's it. That's how these people do this. These people in the world who have been Buddhas before. These people in the world who seem to have this imperturbability to a greater or lesser degree. Why is that? Why is that? Oh, this is why. So it's not about achieving anything. It's about discovering. Oh, this works. This works. And this no longer works. Let's try that. So you're going to pick up and lay down tools as you go along. It's like you carry your toolbox around and you find a hammer here and a wrench there and a screwdriver there and pretty soon the hammer's too heavy and you put it by the wayside. It's no longer useful. And that's okay. And maybe a little bit later you think, gosh, I wish I had that hammer again. So you go back and you pick it up. Those of you who have a barely mature practice, you know what I'm talking about, because this ain't linear. It's not point A to point B. It's a lot of work. It is. It takes dedication. It takes persistence. There's a talk online by an elderly monk called Mahabua, who ran a monastery in Thailand. And it's, this is his last talk. There's the long version and the short version. In the long version, about 15 minutes of it, it's about 40-minute talk. They're getting ready for the rains retreat, which is a, about a three-month period when they don't leave the monastery because the monsoon rains are there and it's really hard to travel in Southeast Asia. So all the monks are gathered around. This man is clearly dying. He is thin as a rail. His belly is bloated. He's like vomiting almost into this bowl. And what does he tell people? Don't be lazy. Get rid of the kalesa, the defilement of laziness. 
persist. That's the whole talk. Why? Because it takes a lot of persistence. It takes a lot of persistence. Doubt's going to creep in. Stuff's going to happen. You're going to want to give it up or you're just going to let it go by the wayside. Come back to it. Persist. Persist. It will reward you if you persist. Persistence doesn't need to be a struggle. Doesn't mean struggle. Just means keep at it. Gently, smilingly, with a sense of ease. Just come back. Just come back. Oh, yeah, I haven't meditated for a few days. Oh, come back. Come back. Do it again. There's actually a simile in here that demonstrates that really well. It's called the simile of the axe handle. And it's about a carpenter, right? And the carpenter uses the axe over time. And over time, years and years and years, the handle wears out. So you got to get a new axe handle. But you don't notice day by day by day the handle of the axe wearing out. Same thing. You keep practicing and practicing and practicing. And day by day by day, you may not notice what's going on. Then if you've been practicing diligently, when the time comes, it's like, oh, wow. Ten years ago, I would have been completely unhinged by this. And now it's like, yeah, I'm a little upset, but it's going to be okay. That's where it really comes to bear is when there's a situation that is a crisis or would have caused a great deal of stress in the past. And you realize that you can be okay with it. It may not be, it doesn't mean you acquiesce to it or that you necessarily accept it. Maybe there's an abuse or something like that and you need to change things. But you act out of a sense of wisdom and ease and kindness and contentment that is very different than reacting out of a sense of anxiety, anger, discontent, fear, worry, whatnot. Very different place to come from. Thank you so much for coming. I hope this has been a benefit to you. And may this practice be for the benefit of all beings. May all beings be free from discontent, from suffering. Thank you for listening. We know your time is valuable, so we are grateful you choose to spend it with the MOI community. This podcast is supported by listeners like you. To make an offering, please visit us at mindfulnessoutreachinitiative.org. And tune in each week for more Dharma talks, reflections, and teachings centered in the insight meditation tradition.